Teeth Podcast, Episode 6. Chromatin Organization. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support team of Active Motif. The topic of this episode is chromatin organization. Our special guest for this episode is Susan Gasser, director of the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel. And I'm happy to sit down now with you here. Thank you, Ms. Gasser, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Let me quickly introduce you to our audience because they might not know you um, as well. Um, you studied biochemistry at the University of Chicago, and then you completed your PhD at the University of Basel. As a postdoc, uh, you studied the long-range folding of the genome in flies and human cells. From 1986 to 2001, you were research group leader at the Swiss Institute for Experimental, for Experimental Cancer Research. And since December 2004, you are director of the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel now. My um, question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in pursuing a career in science and in biology? And Okay, well, I always liked um, ideas and concepts, uh, and then uh, and I started my university studies studying philosophy and ancient Greek. But then, um, in one actually in a philosophy course, I was re we were reading Darwin, and I realized that you could have just the same kind of abstractions and concepts uh, based on biology, and actually that. That interested me even more because it was based on something really concrete, observable, and and uh, experimental. So um, I I switched from philosophy to uh, biology, bi biophysics, and and I would it was the right choice. Yeah, I guess we can see that now. Um, you were born in the U.S., but during your career, you switched your location and moved to Switzerland. Um, How did that come and why did you stay? <clears throat> ah, well, staying is easy. It's a <laughs> lovely place to live. But how I got there, there were three things. Uh, one, just itchy feet. I always liked to travel. And uh, two, um, I, I had been in Europe and I loved the richness of culture, cultural history in Europe. And then the third thing was true love, my husband. I married a Swiss. And oh, yeah. The, that's that always the best, the best reason to stay in a country. <laughs> So you are now director of the FMI in Basel for now over more than a decade. And what are the biggest challenges in being the director of such a, re such a research institute? Because it's more than 100 postdocs and more than 80 PhD students, so it must be quite a challenge to handle all this. Um, yes, uh, yes and no. And actually, probably if you asked me two or three years ago, I would have thought would have said something different. But Now I, I really realize the hardest thing to ensure and to make sure that you have the highest standards is to make sure all your group leaders are good mentors. So with that many students and postdocs, it's easy, you know, to have good hiring policies. It's easy, you know, to uh, encourage high standards of science. Almost everybody wants that. But then you realize group leaders have very, very differing um, standards of mentoring, how they guide their students, how much advice they give, how much, uh, how much they leave them alone, and and it it it's actually very hard to ensure that an institute really meets the proper criterion in uh, student and postdoc mentoring. So that's right now quite 
one of those things that occupies me a great deal. Uh, the rest, if I were in any other institute, I think the problem would be money raising, but actually my institute is quite well funded, so it, it's it's not a big problem. So if you look at the criteria for the postdocs you want or for the group leaders you want to, to acquire, where do you look? Is it first the science and then also the personal things? Uh, how is the how can yeah. they lead the, the people? How can they mentor the people? Um, it's both. Uh, I mean, of course, we have a high standard, a high bar for science. Also, the importance is the fit, not just nature cell papers, but really the fit into the community. Uh, we are 23 group leaders, and it's very important that you know they're synergistic because it's not that big an institute. And uh, but also, I think that question of fitting in is also a question of personality, of generosity, of you know thinking of others not only of themselves. Uh, you look for all of this. You're also running your own research group. How do you manage to? I mean, to handle all this in, in, in the 24 hours of a day. Time management. It's, it's just a question of deciding what, that, to do? what to do. And of course, I don't do everything. Uh, I have to have very good collaborators in the lab. So I, I have sort of a lieutenant, lab lieutenant. And then I really try to hire students and postdocs who can think independently. So uh, careful choice of independent people. Um, you also talked now, and we also talked about this uh, before the interview. Um, you're very well funded, so you you get, I guess, uh, what is the the ratio of money you get from the FMI, and you you will get from other sources? Yeah, it's about thirty seventy. So seventy percent is core funding from Novartis Foundation Research Foundation, and thirty percent is competitive grants. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a good ratio. Um, but also, I think it's good to have to have to apply for money because it, people get engaged in you know the the scientific community. Uh, grant writing is also you know a good way to test your ideas. But the core funding is wonderful for providing a good environment, core facilities, um, enough freedom that people can explore really. New paths, new their, their own ideas, their yes. own ideas. Yeah. Talking about ideas, um, let's talk about more about your research. One of your areas of research is chromatin organization, also a topic that <laughs> I really like, and also the establishment and maintenance of heterochromatin in C. elegans. Um, why did you choose C. elegans as a model organism for those studies? Well, I came into this from yeast, and actually, I did work on telomeric silencing in yeast, uh, but. I realized that actually the heterochromatin at telomeres is not that essential. Uh, the only it, it's important for mating type, but not not for much else except maybe the efficiency of telomerase. So um, I wanted an organism that differentiated into multi you know multi tissues, and I wanted something that I could still approach genetically. So C. elegans over flies or other you know, model organisms. Um, it's also completely transparent, so I can do lots of microscopy, which I've always done in budding yeast. And um, yeah, the, the main thing is that heterochromatin 
silencing of genes and nuclear organization, they're mostly important in differentiated tissues. We know that because laminopathies or mutants in, mutations in lamins, they cause uh, defects in differentiated tissues, not development, but in uh, late onset adult tissues. So it's really clear that if you want to study spatial organization, the nucleus, spatial distribution of chromosomes, chromatin, also heterochromatin, uh, you need a, an organism that differentiates. C. elegans does that <laughs> very nicely. That's true. Um, is it that you really actively decide for the model organism or that you somehow passively stumble into that? Or <laughs> No, I, it was a decision. And, and yeah, actually, okay. I, I probably would have done it five years earlier, but uh, I was a professor in Geneva and I was going to take a sabbatical to learn C. elegans. But then I, I never had time and then I was offered this position at FMI as director. And, and actually, there were already two C. elegans groups And so that made it very easy. We could we could do C. elegans, learn it from neighbor labs, and I didn't have to go on sabbatical. So that was yeah. easy. So the, the environment was great for yeah. that. In a publication in 2012, you and your team investigated the stepwise methylation of H3K9 and their positioning at the nuclear periphery. Uh, you also yeah, just talked about it a little. Uh, can you explain how this process generally works? Sure. So um, what we did, we did a screen for the loss of heterochromatin anchoring, and we actually got S-adenosylmethionine synthase, which is the upstream of, of uh, the donor. Um, well, the SAM is the donor for methylation. Then we tested all histone methyl transferases, and we had to, none of them alone really knocked out heter heterochromatin anchoring, but two pairwise, we found two histone methyl transferases, and they were both, the targets of both of them were H3K9. We found out that one of them does mono and die, and the other one does tri on H3K9. And you had to knock out both to really delocalize uh, this heterochromatic array. So uh, the way it works is that, um, actually, we know now both are, both are nuclear, One is the ESET homolog, or SETDB1 homolog, and one is has the uh, active site of G9A, the mammalian G9A, but it doesn't have the rest of the protein. That's the one that does trimethylation. So what we know is that um, there's an anchor at the nuclear envelope. I'll talk about that later if you want about CEC4. It's a, it's a membrane, transmembrane, or membrane-associated chromodomain protein with a very, very high specificity for mono, di, or tri, H3K9, and only K9, mono, di, tri. So that provides the anchor, and uh, the nucleosomes become modified by either this MET2, the, the dimethyl or the trimethyl, methyl transferase, and then they associate with the periphery. Since monomethyl also binds, it's clear that, and monomethyl doesn't silence, It's clear that anchoring precedes silencing. So um, probably, we don't know whether, um, well, probably most both, um, both histomethyl transferases modify <clears throat> uh, nucleosomes once they're integrated into the chromatin. Uh, although 
the ESET, the MET2, is also partially cytoplasmic. Initially, we thought it was only cytoplasmic. Now we know it's also nuclear. Then these, these histone methyltransferases actually stay associated with the heterochromatin. So I think it's, it's one of these um, self-propagating cycles that, you know, you, you methylate, you, you by integrate the uh, nucleosomes, they become methylated, uh, they attach to the periphery. In some cases, they bind HP1 and get silenced, or, or LIN61, that's another silencing factor. But um, they're sequestered at the periphery, and then the histomethyltransferases stay associated with the heterochromatin, and when you replicate, it gets um, reestablished. If you knock out the H3K9 methylation, you affect both silencing and anchoring. But if you knock out just the anchor, you only lose anchoring and you still and have the silencing. So from that, we know that you don't have to be at the periphery to silence. Um, we asked the question, you know, is there any phenotype um, associated with not being at the periphery? And it was a very subtle phenotype. Um, it was a, a differentiation phenotype in muscle. Uh, and, and actually, it wasn't really so much of being able to make muscle. Muscle could be created pretty easily, but it was for silencing the other pathways that, that can get activated during muscle dif differentiation. So um, we, we can actually separate silencing from anchoring, and, but it's clear that it's the silencing mark that also mediates the anchoring. So one idea is that there, there might be even another function of, of the anchor like timing of replication or or sequestering some some chromatin heterochromatin associated factors away from the euchromatin or something like that. So it, it it's uh, we haven't really solved the question. Uh, you know what's the advantage of um, of being sequestered uh, at the periphery? But probably the advantage. Um, is the robustness of differentiated states so that that's so that they don't don't come back to any other yeah that the muscle does not de develop a liver or something like yes, that. yes exactly so you you talk you, you said that the anchor binds the methylation so does there have to be methylation to bind yes so, so there must uh, be yeah yeah so so probably so we don't find any monomethyltransferase in C. elegans. There may be monomethyltransferases for the K9 mark in mammals. That's what Thomas Yenuwein was looking for. But uh, we think it's the same enzyme that does mono and dye. That, I mean, that does dye, does mono. That's the MET2. So um, probably, this is still unresolved, but probably most of the methylation actually occurs um, either upon deposition or, um, yeah, in the nucleus. So it, it, it's not, so I think you asked. Um, I mean, there, there must be an initial methylation, right? Right. I, I mean, okay. it, has to, it has to come from somewhere. Right? So the question is what targets these enzymes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, we've done a screen for that. <laughs> that's a new, that's a better question, but it's a very, very important question. And uh, we've done it. We've we've answered for the 
the set 25, the one that does trimethylation. We did a screen to find out what targets it de novo to unmethylated sequences and uh, or chromatin. And we, we found two factors. One is this protein called LIN61, which binds already binds the dimethyl mark. So that's a propagating mark. The other one is very interesting. It's, it's a nuclear argonaut, uh, NRD3, and it binds two other factors in a complex called NRD2, 3, and 4. And um, it, it seems to function quite a bit like the risk complex in, in Pombe that um, it processes transcripts, double-stranded tra transcripts from transposons, for example, and then recruits set 25 to, to silence the area. So um, we're still working out the pathway, but it looks very much like there's a, a double-stranded RNA targeting of set 25 for histone methylation, and there's a mode for propagating when you just have silent chromatin and no transcripts. So two systems. <laughs> um, you, you know, said that um, heterochromatin is on the outside of the, of yeah. the nucleus and on the lamina. Yeah. But what also interested me is like, there's also chroma, uh, heterochromatin at the nucleoli, right? Right, right, right around yeah. the nucleoli. Is there any? Yeah, that's a good question. We don't know what sequesters it along the nucleoli. Um, uh, I mean, you could guess. There's lots of RNA uh, yeah. <laughs> in the nucleolus, and uh, could be that HP1 we know binds RNA as well as binding uh, nucleosomes. It, it could be something like that. It, it's um, we haven't actually done a screen for loss of association with with uh, the nucleolus. It, yeah, for me that's still a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> Something to to learn. Yeah. Um, now we skipped over a lot of my written down questions, yeah. but but um, one I still have is how can those results be? I mean, you did it in C. elegans now, but yeah. is that something that's also found in higher organisms? Well, definitely, um, H3K9 methylation is associated with lamin associate with LADs. So, um, and and the fact is, even though in mammalian cells, um, we know that lamin B receptor and lamin itself is necessary for anchoring heterochromatin, we don't have the link from those proteins to the chromatin itself. So lamin is not a chrome. I mean, it has a weak affinity for histones, but that's a non-specific affinity uh, that wouldn't explain the specificity of heterochromatin anchoring. Lamin B receptor has a Tudor domain, but it seems to only to bind H4K20 dimethyl, and that's a ubiquitous mark. So that also doesn't explain it. So in mammals, there seems to what's missing is the specific anchor, which we have in this CEC4 um, uh, uh, C. elegans protein. So naturally, we look to see if CEC4 had a direct homologue in, in mammals. Certainly, the chromodomain does. So it has a canonical, almost a canonical um, H3K9 monoditrimethyl binding uh, chromodomain. Looks something like 40. CEC4 is something like 
48% identity with the chromodomain of HP1, of okay. human. Yeah. So that's really very, <laughs> very close. And of course, structurally, it's very close. But uh, CC4 has a long C-terminal domain, which doesn't have any homology to HP1. And, and anyway, C. elegans has two HP1 molecules, and they don't anchor. They only silence. So it's clear that HP1 is involved in other things, and, and CEC4 is recognized the mark and is an anchor, and that long C-terminal domain is completely necessary for the association with the nuclear envelope. So um, we looked, unfortunately, it's a, it's a highly unstructured domain. Now, th now those are very, very popular, <laughs> but that doesn't explain its specificity for the nuclear envelope. So um, we have done another screen to try to find these and, and an approach, a biochemical approach to try to find the anchor and to see if it's better conserved in mammals. There, there are some proteins um, in mammals that sort of look like the unstructured domain of, of CEC4, but it's very difficult. They, they, they aren't coupled with a, a Tudor dom uh, with a chromo domain. So, um, Probably, I'm guessing that in higher eukaryotes, um, the two factors are have been split into more than one gene, uh, and that there's still going to be something that recognizes the marks on silent chromatin and holds them at the the nuclear envelope. And and I think there's still work to be done on LAM and B receptor and its yeah. specificity. So now you brought uh, CEC4 up, uh, and you also did a. A publication on in a cell paper um, on CEC4, you did a knockout on that. Um, what were the results? Because you mentioned that it does have a limited effect on normal transcription, right? Right. That was really the surprise that you could lose the anchoring and really, well, there's one gene that's strongly derepressed. We don't even know why, except that it is a domain on a chromosome arm that's normally at the periphery. But so are lots of other domains and, and they don't become derepressed when they're, they're delocalized. Um, so um, we, we assume that, um, I mean, we, we can just separate that the same mark is being read by anchor proteins and silencing proteins. Um, so that there would be, again, two pathways. Exactly. And, and, and whether... So I, I, I think people have also shown in mammalian cells that it's not HP1 that is mediating anchoring in mammalian cells, even though there's a clear, strong correlation of the H3K9 di and trimethyl mark with the LADs. So my, I think there's still work to be done, find these factors that are the anchor factors. Um, something has to interact with the lamin and specifically probably can you speculate on why there are like these two different uh, pathways is it like there, there must be a redundancy to ensure the stability of the of, of this process so that if it's not anchored it's still silenced and if it's not silenced it's still anchored and gets silenced by anchoring yeah i think the i think probably anchoring has another function i, I think um Efficiency, the robustness of silencing, that's important. I think in differentiated cells, the CEC4 may have minor. Since, since we were looking in embryos where it had a strong effect on positioning, it didn't have an effect on ex gene expression. 
but it may have a an effect in specific differentiated tissues, particularly muscle, because it's heavily expressed in muscle. Um, but I, I think actually there may just be another function for CEC4 that we we just don't know. Regulating, as I mentioned before, maybe timing of replication or some some other factor that requires spatial segregation of canine methyl chromatin. More recently, and I, I of course, read, <laughs> looked around in, in the internet and, and uh, stumbled upon your webpage, um, you and your team found that the stability of repetitive elements also is controlled by H3K9 methylation. And you, on your website, you talk about some preliminary data. I don't know how much you want to sh share sure. with us, us in this setting, but uh, can you just share? <coughs> yeah, no, some? it's, uh, well, some of it's published, the rest is <laughs> submitted. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, actually, I, I think what we've found is that since development occurs, differentiation of C. elegans from embryo to adult is almost perfect. Uh, With or it's a little bit delayed, but not not severely uh, impaired in the absence of H3K9 methylation. So we asked the question, what's it really for? So we examined uh, very carefully the double knockout mutant. We found that it, it gets sterile. Sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry for yeah for the question. Met two and set 25. Yes, yeah. set set met two and set 25, the two HMTs. So um, in the set two, uh, set 25 met two. Mute, double mutant, the uh, the worms go sterile. So the germline is unstable. We looked at it. The gonad is perfectly formed, but the uh, germ cells undergo apoptosis. So we looked, why do they go undergo apoptosis? It turns out it's the P53 pathway, and they're, they're full of DNA damage, lots of RAD51 yeah, okay. foci, lots of damage, RAD52 foci. So then we asked the question, Why are they full of damage, actually? Uh, so we we looked at the transcript, transcriptome, the RNA-seq, actually. We did a complete RNA-seq so that we could map both transcripts from genes and transcripts from repetitive elements. And we found that, yes, there are some genes that are derepressed, but they're not repair genes. They're not cell cycle genes. Nothing that would cause apoptosis. But... A lot of repeats were being expressed. Up to 30% of the, of the repeats in the genome were making transcripts. And some of these were transposons where they have pull 2 promoters, but a lot of them, uh, and especially in the MET2 mutant, a lot of them were just simple satellite repeats. And C. elegans doesn't have long, long satellite repeats at the centromere. It only has short satellite repeats, but spread all over the arms of the chromosomes. Okay. So that means we could map the transcripts. And sure enough, they're mapping to various uh, repetitive sequences, just, you know, sometimes only uh, 20 or 30 base pairs long, and sometimes two or 300 base pairs long. Simple repeats. Now, this was strange. So we asked, well, what What would that cause damage? What kind of damage would it cause? We sequenced the genomes. We found lots of small inserts and, and uh, deletions in these regions, only in the regions that had canine in the wild, canine methyl in the wild type. So 
um, knowing that this was a transcription-dependent damage, and uh, we did a screen, and this part is not published, but we did a screen for factors that um, would accentuate the germline lethality in, in the worms, because the worms actually show temperature-dependent uh, lethality. They're, they're s sterile at 25, but not at 20. So we did the screen at 20 degrees, and we, we hit gold. It was about 15 or 20 factors that are all involved in replication fork stability and okay. degradation and, and another group of genes that are involved, like the exosome in RNA degradation. So when we look at replication fork stability, we realize that one of the main sources of replication stress and, and replication fork collapse is actually RNA-DNA hybrids. So we asked the question, do these worms lacking H3K9 methylation that express, have promiscuous transcripts from repetitive DNA, do they have RNA-DNA hybrids? So there's an antibody, which active motif should sell, <laughs> which uh, recognizes RNA-DNA hybrids. It's very useful. So you can stain, you can do, we call it drip sec, where you can precipitate and sequence these sequences. And sure enough, they're uh, RNA-DNA hybrids. They accumulate to high levels in the canine-deficient worms. In and the repetitive. In the, only in the, well, mostly in the repetitive DNA, sometimes in transposons, but mostly in the simple repeats. So... Um, this is, this is for me very interesting. And among the factors that were necessary for getting rid of and degrading these R loops was BRCA1. And BRCA1 is a complex with BARD1. BARD and it deposits a ubiquitin mark. And sure enough, in these worms, they also had ubiquitin marking now these repetitive elements. So, um, and, and loss of BRCA1 caused some transcription as well. So we see a, a synergistic loop where if you transcribe repeats to a, maybe a small level, you can just take care of it by BRCA and by RNA's age. But if you, if you don't have K9 methylation, you, you overwhelm the system. You're making lots of transcripts. Uh, there aren't transcripts because they're, they're RNAs that are not processed for export. They, they don't have cap structures. They have nothing because they're not... So it's just there. Right? It's just there. And therefore, they anneal when you replicate the DNA, and then this causes massive damage. And oh, and, it, and it's likely, well, actually, we're quite sure that this is the source of the sterility because we see synergistic um, sterility when you knock out BRCA1 and the MET, and the MET, Met set double mutant. Uh, and, and, and it's highly, highly synergistic. So... Um, the idea is that, my idea, <laughs> is that actually H3K9 methylation originally evolved to keep repetitive elements silent. Maybe that's also why they're at the periphery, because you don't need to transcribe them, and, and, and the transcription's going on in its own compartment, so better to get repetitive DNA out of the way. Uh, and maybe also by clustering it together, if there is damage in repetitive DNA, it can recombine with other repetitive elements and try to be, be repaired. But um, I, I think H3K9 methylation, even though I, I started studying C. elegans in order to study differentiation, 
I think H3K9 methylation is not really crucial for differentiation, but it's really crucial for stabilizing repetitive elements, keeping them silent, but also keeping the genome stable. And it turns out that even though we don't know exactly why we have all these transposons and so much repetitive DNA, um, it's clear that if we could live without it, we probably would have evolved and gotten rid of it. So that's the next mystery to solve. What, what, why do we have repeats, especially if our main goal is to keep them silent? So I guess this was a very good summary. I don't have to, to ask any more questions. <laughs> and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This was the sixth episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter at EpigeneticsPod, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at Eurotech at ActiveMotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. If you wish to stay current on epigenetics research, please subscribe to our newsletter on the Active Motif website. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <music>